You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Um, so the Bible reading is from Matthew 21, starting at verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, "Go, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time came, uh, approached, he went to his, sent his servants to the tenants to collect the, his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in his eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls, he will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Uh, Going on to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But when they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business, the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street's corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding, excuse me, the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Thanks, Claire. Let's think about God's word. Uh, let's see what God has to say to us. So let's pray uh, before we start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, and even though it is quite hot today, we uh, know that it's worth listening to you uh, and you have wonderful things to say to us. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to focus, to, to pay attention and to hear uh, the message of your son as we study this passage in Matthew today. Amen. Like all people, I got into trouble when I was a kid. Not as much as other kids, but I still had to do my fair share of apologising after being told off. And sometimes they were fake apologies. You know what I mean? Uh, you say you're sorry, but you don't actually mean it. You just say it so that the adult telling you off will leave you alone. I actually remember one night uh, we had a family came over to our house for dinner and us kids were all out the front playing on the road at the front of our house. It's the main road of our town, uh, but it's a small town, so it wasn't that busy. It was mostly safe. And we're walking along the road and kind of kicking the stones and started throwing them at each other as kids do. And then we thought it'd be funny to pretend to throw stones at the cars as they came towards us. And so you could see the headlights, it's kind of getting dark, see the headlights of the cars coming by and we lifted up our arms and we're kind of throwing like this, pretending that we're throwing the stones because that's a fun thing to do, right? It was fun until one of the cars actually pulled over and the window was wound down and a lady leaned out and started yelling at us. And so we just kind of stood there and said, yes, we're sorry, we won't do it again. Yes, thank you for pointing out the error of our ways. And off she rode. Now, I clearly remember all of these years later thinking that that lady was stupid for being grumpy and how dare she tell us off. It was a fake apology. Now, don't get me wrong, I realise now it was the wrong thing to do and I wouldn't want my kids to do that, so I hope you're listening, kids, don't do that. But at the time, I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. We were just mucking around, having fun, and I had no plans to change my behaviour. For many people, becoming a Christian is a bit like making fake apologies. Now, they think that it's just a matter of nodding along to the gospel message, going, yes, I agree that I'm a sinner and I've done the wrong thing. Yes, I'm sorry for disobeying you, God. Yes, I trust in Jesus who died on the cross. But it's all just about saying the right thing until God will just kind of go away and leave you alone. It's about getting off the hook, getting that uh, get out of hell for free card. It's a fake apology because there's no true sorrow. There's no desire to change. In other words, there's no repentance. This is something that we can miss when we hear the good news, uh, even maybe when we share the good news. We put the emphasis on faith and how salvation is a wonderful free gift, and it really is. Yeah, we just need to receive it. But we forget that true faith goes hand in hand with repentance. 
Now, in case you don't know what that word repentance means, uh, think of it as making a U-turn in your life or a, a 180. It's about admitting that you've been going the wrong way and you're going to turn and go the right way. You aren't really trusting in Jesus if you're still walking away from him. Today we're going to study Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, all the way through to chapter 22, verse 14. It's a big chunk. And what I want us to see is that the kingdom of God is for those who come to Jesus with a true faith marked by fruitful repentance. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is for those who come to Jesus with a true faith marked by fruitful repentance. So as we start, uh, let's get a bit of an overview of this passage. And we can see that it's made up of three parables against the Jewish leaders who refused to repent. You might recall last week in the previous passage that the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they questioned Jesus on his authority. What gave him the right to come parading into Jerusalem on a donkey, parading in as the son of David? And what gave him the right to clear out the temple courts? Because they didn't believe that he had heavenly authority to do these things. And so they were pretty upset with Jesus. And so now in our passage, it's Jesus' turn. And he tells three parables to turn up the heat on them. If you don't know, a parable is a story about ordinary day things that has a special spiritual meaning. If you like, they're earthly pictures of heavenly truths. And Jesus loves telling them. These three parables that Jesus tells are designed to help the leaders to understand that they're disobeying God by refusing to repent of their ways. I mean, you can tell that this is what it's meant because they kind of get it in verses 45 and 46. Check them out in your Bibles. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, before we get into the detail of each parable, let me show you three threads that connect them all because this will give us a bit of a head start in understanding them. And hopefully you'll see why it is that Jesus grouped these three together. The first thread, the, the common element we find in each of them, is the importance of obeying the master. Parable one has a father who tells his sons to go and work in the vineyard. Parable two has a landowner who demands fruit from the tenants who are working in his vineyard. And parable three has a king holding a wedding banquet for his son and he expects the invited guests to turn up. A second thread is a reversal of the insiders and outsiders. In each parable, the people that you expect to obey the master actually show stubborn resistance and sometimes violent hostility. The outsiders are then said to be the ones who are entering the kingdom of God. Sinners go ahead of the Jewish leaders. Uh, the kingdom will be taken away from the leaders and given to another people. Outsiders, whether bad or good, will be invited into the kingdom. And the third thread is about the importance of fruitful repentance. This is really the key idea. I think it helps us to unlock the meaning of these parables. You see, Jesus is contrasting false faith with true faith and it centers on whether or not people commit to obeying God. 
See, the Pharisees, they claimed to be faithful to God, yet they refused to repent of their wrongdoing. And listen to what John the Baptist said to them way back in chapter 3 of Matthew. I'll read out verses 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then listen carefully to this bit. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What is John looking for? What is God looking for? People who produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, people who turn from their old way of living against God and will turn to live for God, to listen to him, to trust in him, to obey him. They commit to living a new life. It's not a fake apology, it's a fruitful one. This is fruitful repentance. So we're going to unpack this idea as we go along. So, you're ready to jump into the first parable? I bet some of you were ready ages ago. But let's jump into parable one, where we learn of a vineyard owner and his two sons. Have a look, it starts in verse 28. I'll read out the first three verses. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Jesus then asks his listeners, which son did what the father wanted? And they correctly figured out it's the first son. You see, they rightly recognize that actions are more important than words. The second son can say, I will, sir, as much as he likes, but that's not going to get the grapes picked. The first son may have been rude and disobedient and a bit stubborn, but he changes his mind. He regrets his words. He repents of his words and he changes his actions. Jesus then challenges the leaders by saying that sinners are entering the kingdom of God ahead of them. Have a look at verse 32. For John, that's John the Baptist, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So it kind of helps that Jesus interprets the parable for us. You know, if you're ever trying to understand what a parable means, if Jesus tells you the answer, that's the answer. But let's go over some of these details. And you'll see in my kind of special edition expanded outline that for each parable, we're going to ask the same three questions. How did the leaders of Israel fail? Who is the kingdom of God open to? And what does fruitful repentance look like? So first, we see in this parable that the leaders of Israel failed because they thought it was enough to just say that they were committed to God. Yeah, they were yes sons. They had all the right answers. They knew what obedience looked like, but they didn't actually do obedience. You know, their mouth said, I will, sir, but their actions said, I will not. They spoke about pursuing righteousness and showed others this is the way of righteousness, how to please God, to live for him. But when God sent John the Baptist to say, and here's kind of the final piece of the puzzle, here's the way of righteousness, they refused to believe him. They refused to repent. That's the main idea here. You see, their hearts were exposed by their inaction. They didn't 
acknowledge their failure to perfectly obey God at all times. They didn't acknowledge that they weren't as righteous as they thought they were. They didn't understand their need for forgiveness. They were deceived about their status before God. So it's not open to them, that the kingdom. Then who is the kingdom of God open to? Well, Jesus tells us in his explanation it's open to repentant sinners. He mentions tax collectors. I mean, the Jews hated them because they were greedy. They were traders who worked with the Roman Empire to gather taxes from their own Jewish people. And then also Jesus mentions prostitutes who were sexually immoral. These were people who had said no to God for years and years. Yet when they heard the preaching of John the Baptist, their hearts melted and they said, I will, sir. They got off their butts and went to work in the vineyard. Now this would have been a shock to Jesus' hearers because these are not the sort of people who you'd expect to be in the kingdom. They're outsiders. They were considered to be far from the kingdom. Yet Jesus says they are actually getting in first. So, how does this apply to us today? What does fruitful repentance look like? Well, first of all, we do need to remember as we look through these parables that Jesus is speaking them to Jewish leaders. They're kind of in a different category to us, a different situation, part of history. But there are some helpful ideas we can get out of it. I think we can see that fruitful repentance starts with having a heart that says, I will God. It's not enough just to say it with your mouth. It's not enough to say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. We also need to turn from our rebellion against God. We need to say yes to God with our hearts, with our minds, with our lives, with everything that we do. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that we earn our way into heaven by our repentance. We don't earn our way into heaven by going to work in the vineyard. We work in the vineyard because we have trusted in Jesus. We are saved by faith alone, but true faith will have repentance. False faith says yes to God, but it's a fake apology because there's no inward regret over sin and no desire to change. True faith is accompanied by a recognition and a willingness of the need to change. And so if you realize that you've only been saying yes to God on the outside, well then the thing you can do is pray to him. So it's God's spirit that changes our heart. And so pray to God, ask him to change your heart so that you'll say yes on the inside as well. Let's parable one. Let's go to parable two. We learn there about a vineyard owner and his tenants. So let's quickly summarize the story. Uh, a man rents his vineyard out to some farmers and then he leaves the region. And then at harvest time, he expects to get some of the fruit. And so he sends his servants back to these tenants to get some of his fruit. But these wicked farmers, they mistreat the servants. Uh, they even kill some of them. And so the man decides to send his own son because surely they'll respect his son. But no, they even kill the son. Jesus then asks the crowd that he's speaking to you, what will the owner do when he comes to his vineyard? And look at what they say in verse 41. Oh, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So let's look at our three questions to unpack this parable. 
First of all, how did the leaders of Israel fail? Why is Jesus telling this parable? Well, see, they hindered the nation's fruitfulness by ignoring God's prophets. As God's chosen people, the Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, bringing blessing to the whole world. But they'd failed to bear the fruit that God demanded. They are the fruitless fruitless fig tree from earlier in this chapter. And in this parable, Jesus is laying blame particularly upon the Jewish leaders. See, they'd failed to teach the nation to properly lead them. They failed to prepare them for true repentance and instead they burdened them with unreasonable man-made rules and demands. They failed to call in the outsiders to, to seek the lost and to call them back. Instead, they treated them harshly and kept them at a distance. And so the servants in this story are the numerous prophets that God sent throughout the centuries. And while these leaders would have claimed that they accepted the teachings of those prophets, you know, maybe leaders in the past didn't like them, but we love the prophets. But the way they treat John the Baptist and Jesus shows that they didn't really get what the prophets were actually saying. And now here they are in the process of rejecting the Son of God. I mean, did you get that Jesus is the Son in the parable? Hopefully that was, that was clear. Jesus is the Son. He's the final one sent to look for fruit in the nation. And Jesus finds there's no fruit, which is why he condemns the leaders. He knows that they're going to kill him, just like the son in the parable. But he quotes Psalm 118 as a bit of a warning. Have a look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118, and it's the same psalm that people were quoting as Jesus arrived in on the donkey. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a, that's a direct quote. And now Jesus quotes it again to show that he is like the rejected stone who will become the cornerstone. The leaders will reject Jesus, they will kill him, but he'll be resurrected and he'll become the foundation of a new nation, a new people, a new kingdom. According to verse 43, because of their failure, the kingdom of God will be taken away from these leaders and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In fact, according to verse 44, Jesus himself will be like a stone that people stumble on and will be judged. They will be broken in judgment. So if the kingdom is taken away from the Jewish leaders, then who gets to go in now? Well, we learn from this parable that the kingdom of God is open to a new people who will produce its fruit. The kingdom will not belong to the nation of Israel, but rather to the church. The church is a new people made up of both Jews and Gentiles who trust in Jesus, the cornerstone. Israel was supposed to be a fruitful vineyard, but they failed. And so now the church is called to have that role. And so we can see the idea of fruitful repentance is here again. You see, true repentance will lead to a changed life that will bear fruit, not for our glory, but for God's glory, as people see God at work in our lives. God expects that Christians and the church will be different to the world around us. And just a quick note that applies to this parable and the one before it. 
I think some people would kind of see these parables and even the gospel messages being about overturning power structures, you know, liberating the oppressed. And they can falsely think, well, why do the tax collectors and prostitutes get in? Well, it's actually compensation for how they've been mistreated over the years. And it's just kind of turning the tables and that's justice. This is not about power or status. It's about repentance. You see, the sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they were getting in because they were repenting and believing, while the supposedly righteous leaders refused to repent. I mean, as John the Baptist says, everyone must produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So again, what does fruitful repentance look like? And perhaps before we move on to that, maybe one of our setup team guys could have a look at the cooling system. I don't know, maybe the fuses flipped off or something. Have a play around with that. Thanks. So again, what does fruitful repentance look like? Well, it's building your life on Jesus, the cornerstone, so that you can bear kingdom fruit. As Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for all the times that we've said no to God. For all the times that we've ignored his messengers, his message. For all the times we've turned away from God to live fruitless lives. He suffered in our place so that we might be forgiven. And even though he was cut off from life, he was dishonored, buried in a tomb, three days later he was raised up in glory. He isn't just the stone now laying at the corner of God's new kingdom. He's the magnificent, glorified, perfect, radiant stone. He has been honoured. And this is marvellous in our eyes, that God could do this. And so it's by trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection coming back to life that we can enter into the kingdom of God. And see, once we're in the kingdom, there's work to do. We live out our new identity as those who are called to labor for God, to produce kingdom fruit for his glory. And we do this by building our lives on Jesus. So can you see then that fruitful repentance, it's not just about being sorry for your sin, kind of regretting your sin. It's having a heart that says, I will, sir. It's also about turning away from our sin to live a new life. Now, before we move on, let me say that we shouldn't miss the point that this is directed to leaders. Jesus is rebuking the leaders for not teaching the people properly. And so there's a bit of a word of warning for us in our church who are leaders, for DPC's pastors, for our elders, for our gospel community leaders, for those who teach in the kids' ministry, those who teach anyone the Bible. See, we should be pointing people to Jesus so they're trusting in him and, and making it clear that fruitful repentance goes hand in hand with saving faith. Let's turn to our final parable, a king's banquet and his guests. Now, Jesus mixes it up a little bit here. Uh, he doesn't ask a question of the crowd after he tells the parable and he doesn't really give much of an interpretation except for what he says in verse 14. And also there's a bit of a twist at the end, but we'll get to that. So again, let's look at our three questions. First of all, how did the leaders of Israel fail? 
Well, in this story, a king throws a wedding banquet for his son and he sends out the servants to gather all of the guests who'd already been invited. But incredibly, the people refuse to come. So in verse 4, the king very patiently and graciously sends more servants out just to make it clear that the banquet is all ready to go and so it's time to come to the wedding. In verse 5, we see that a bunch of guests just simply ignore the servants. But other guests seize the servants, mistreat them and then kill them. That's pretty full on, isn't it? And then look at what the king does in verse 7. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I mean, there's a lot of hot heads here, isn't there? It's a pretty intense reaction. But actually shows that God is very angry at the Jewish leaders. You see, he is the king who's invited them to the celebration of his son, Jesus. The Jews, they were invited to the kingdom years and years ago. But now that it's dawning in the ministry of Jesus, he's saying the kingdom of God is near, they're refusing to come along. They won't celebrate with Jesus, and so they're going to be punished. So then who does get to join the kingdom? Who does get to go to the banquet? Well, have a look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Then he said to his servants, well, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the kingdom of heaven is open to the bad people and the good people who accept the invitation. Do you notice that these people, they weren't initially invited, but they respond positively. They turn up and they get in. And among them are good people and bad people. And I think that's, that's really important because it shows that the categories that the Jews had applied to humanity don't really count here. And we can be a bit like that too, can't we? We kind of go, well, there's the kind of nice, good sort of person you expect to become a Christian. Of course, they'll be in heaven. But then there's those bad people that we don't really like. And of course, I'm always a good person. It's the people I don't like who are the bad people. But Jesus is saying, no, it's everyone who gets in. Everyone gets an invite and they just need to show up. This is the message of the gospel. But there's a twist in this story that shows merely showing up is not really enough. We also learn that the kingdom of heaven is open to those who are clothed in true faith. Have a look at verses 11 to 13. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, this guy is pretty full on again, isn't he? You don't mess with this king. But just imagine that, right? You're kind of out digging a ditch or filling in your tax returns, whatever you're doing, and these servants from the king come and you get this unexpected last-minute invitation to a wedding banquet. At the king's castle. I mean, how exciting is that? And so you turn up and then you're told you're not dressed well enough and you get thrown out again. 
But there's more to it than that. There's lots of interesting questions, and we could debate all of the details for another 10 minutes, but it's, it's hot, and I'm going to spare you that. So let me sum up. This man's problem is not that he misunderstood the dress code. The man's problem is he ignored the dress code. See, that's why the experience outside of the banquet is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's one of Matthew's favourite phrases. He kind of quotes Jesus saying that a lot as a way of describing what it would be like if you're excluded from heaven, from the kingdom. And that gnashing of teeth is kind of a, a sign of anguish and regret. This man should have known better and he'll regret his actions. You see, it's not enough just to turn up to the kingdom or turn up to heaven or turn up to Jesus and say, well, here I am, I heard the gospel and I thought it sounded all right, so I just thought I'd come and check it out. You see, you need to come in repentance. You need to clothe yourself in true faith, a faith that's accompanied by fruitful repentance. You need to show that you understand what it is that you're actually trusting in, what this change in your life means. Let me give you some examples. Imagine Jesus came to you, knocked on your door and said, Hey, I want to invite you to my kingdom and all you have to do is leave your old life behind and come and follow me. And then you say, oh, that sounds awesome. I'm just going to grab my porn collection and let's go. Or you say, oh, I can't wait to tell those jerks in the office that they're all going to rot in hell. Or you say, okay, that sounds great. I'll, I'll follow you at 4 p.m. on Sundays, possibly on YouTube if I'm not, uh, if I'm not too busy, but you know, otherwise if I've got other things planned, I, I just might keep living my old life. So do you think Jesus would accept that as genuine faith? See, it would seem that if that was your response to turning to follow Jesus, having faith in him, you haven't really understood the true nature of the invitation. You haven't understood that you're going to a wedding banquet and you're expected to, to live differently, behave differently. You need to leave your old life behind. This is why Jesus says these words in verse 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So the gospel is going out to the whole world and many are invited into the kingdom. And in fact, it may seem that many accept the invitation, but only the chosen truly accept it. Who are the chosen? How do you get on that list? Well, it's those who have a fruitful repentance empowered by the work of God's Spirit in your life. Can you see then that this gives us yet another idea, another picture of what fruitful repentance looks like, displaying the behaviour and the attitudes of the kingdom. The Bible speaks of being clothed in Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags, our stained deeds. He sees Jesus' perfect life, and we're declared righteous to be in a right standing with God. We're justified. But he also, God wants us to live out that status. You know, we should display the behaviours and attitudes of the kingdom. I mean, we all know that experience of when you dress up, you start to act differently. Maybe for the kids, when you put on a costume, you start to act like a pirate or a cowboy or a ballerina or, or whatever. Uh, for the, the big kids, we like to dress up too. 
It's like when we go to a wedding, we put on a suit or our favourite ball gown. I guess all, all you ladies have ball gowns, right, in your wardrobe at home. And you put on your lovely ball gown and put on your suit and your tie and you start to feel a bit different, don't you? You know, you, you don't want to slouch as much and you, know, you might even act a bit more sophisticated. The Kind of the clothes encourage you to act in a different way. Well, how much more being clothed in Christ? If we will live differently, that's inevitable as the Spirit is working in us. We will produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is displayed as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so what do people notice when they look at you? Can they tell that you're going to the wedding banquet? Can they tell you're kind of wearing the wedding clothes, you're wearing Christ? Or do you just kind of blend in with the rest of the world and those who are not chosen for the kingdom? Do they see someone who has been transformed and is being transformed? Because, you know, you, you don't say you're perfect because we're not perfect, are we? But we admit that. We admit when we do something wrong. We ask people for forgiveness. We, we pray that God would help us to keep growing, to be bearing fruit. Do people see you as someone who acknowledges, humbly acknowledges their failings, but is seeking to live a renewed life by trusting in Jesus. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. But true repentance goes along with true faith. There's no use giving fake apologies to God because he can see through that. You might be able to fool other people, maybe even other Christians, but God can see right through a fake apology. And so you need to have a fruitful repentance that comes from the heart, that commits to building a new life on Jesus and that displays the behaviours and attitudes of the kingdom. And so why not consider the ongoing struggles or sins in your life that you need to turn away from today and pray that Jesus would help you to work on them, to be bearing fruit as you have fruitful repentance in your life day by day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these parables that you told, that even though they were directed to the leaders of Israel and showed their failure, it, it reminds us of the importance of having fruitful repentance. And so we pray you'd help us to know that we are saved by faith alone, but faith reveals itself in turning from sin to you. And so may there be a fruitful repentance that accompanies all of our lives as we trust in Jesus, as we build our lives on him, uh, build our lives on you, Jesus, uh, the great cornerstone. Amen.